Welcome to Assassinations Podcast, where we delve into some of history's most notorious political killings and explore the mysteries and conspiracies that surround them. Time and again, assassins have wielded the blade, the poison vial, the bullet, and the bomb to shape the course of history. I'm your host, Neil Cooper, and in this podcast, I'm going to investigate the lives and deaths of some of history's most colourful characters. This week, we have perhaps the most famous, and probably the most earth-shaking, assassination to investigate. The murder of Archduke Franz Ferdinand and his wife Sophie on the streets of Sarajevo in the summer of 1914. The assassination has been called the most important event of the 20th century, the event that sparked the First World War, which in turn led to the Russian Revolution, the Treaty of Versailles and the Weimar Republic, the rise of the Third Reich, the Second World War, and the Cold War that followed. The story of the death of Franz Ferdinand is the tragic prologue to those great struggles that shaped the 20th century. The assassination marked the end of Europe's aristocratic empires and the beginning of a new age of radical ideologies and industrial warfare. How could the death of one Austrian duke lead to the deaths of millions in the trenches? What was it about this one individual that mattered so much? And why did a gang of revolutionary zealots risk everything to kill him? Let's find out. Come with me. Tarry a while in the dazzling Habsburg court of glamorous Vienna. A whirlwind of operas and balls and royal pageantry. But let us also journey to the dingy, smoke-filled rooms of Serbian terrorists in Belgrade, plotting against the distant Austrian elite that oppresses them. Because in both places, high and low, there are people who would change the fate of all mankind through one single, terrible act. Franz Ferdinand never expected to become heir, and he never really wanted the job. He was reserved to the point of diffidence. He hated public ceremonies, and valued his private life almost above all else. And he'd reconciled himself to the comfortable life of a spare Austrian prince and army officer. But fate had conspired against Franz Ferdinand's plans. His cousin, Crown Prince Rudolf, the son of Emperor Franz Joseph, committed suicide after killing his girlfriend. Though the royal family had sought to hush up the terrible scandal, Viennese society knew all the gory details, and while many sympathised with the emperor, others whispered 
that Rudolf's suicide had been a horrific act of rebellion against his cold and distant father. A devout Catholic, Franz Ferdinand accepted his new role as heir. It must have been the will of God. So, however much he did not want the job, he accepted his new status. It soon became clear that Archduke Franz Ferdinand would not play the role of obedient heir, as Rudolf had failed to do before him, the role expected by the deeply conservative emperor. Instead, Franz Ferdinand would bring further scandal on the House of Habsburg and, in the process, make many powerful enemies in the royal Viennese court. As unpopular as he was in Austria, Franz Ferdinand was even more hated by the Serbian nationalists who were straining under the yoke, as they saw it, of Austrian rule. In the Austrian-controlled province of Bosnia, revolutionary nationalists constantly plotted new ways to undermine their overlords. They wanted to unite all Serb people into a greater Serbian kingdom, and, moreover, to unite all the Slavs of the Balkan region against foreign rule. And that meant that every notable person of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, from the Emperor in Vienna to the local governor in Sarajevo, had a target on their backs. Let us first travel to the Imperial Austrian capital of Vienna. The year 1913. Seven very important people lived in the city that year. Only two of them knew each other at the time, but several others would, over the ensuing years and decades, come to know each other all too well. Let's imagine a scene. Sigmund Freud, the father of psychoanalysis, has left his clinical practice to attend a meeting of fellow luminaries. Striding down the fashionable Linzer Landstrasse shopping street, Sigmund's mind was in a flux as he contemplated the mysteries of the human psyche. He was so distracted, in fact, that he very nearly knocked over the easel of a young street artist, a funny-looking man with a comical little moustache. The artist, Adolf Hitler, shouted at him to watch out, but Freud just kept on going, quite lost in his thoughts. At a cafe nearby, a Jewish-Russian man looked up momentarily from his newspaper to see what the shouting was about. Leon Trotsky had been sitting in the Café Centrale, nursing a coffee for almost an hour. The waiters were starting to look at him scornfully. Trotsky was in exile in Vienna. He and his wife and two children were barely getting by on his journalistic work, living in a scruffy working-class suburb. But that afternoon, he had come into the city centre to wait for the arrival of a fellow revolutionary. Joseph Stalin had travelled from Switzerland, where he had just met with the exiled Lenin. He was passing through Austria on his way back to St. Petersburg. Trotsky and Stalin did not know each other very well then, but neither had a high opinion of the other. Trotsky went to check his watch, 
but then remembered he had pawned it the day before to pay for writing supplies. Stalin at last arrived in a motor car. He paid the driver. The man behind the wheel nodded in appreciation and then pulled away, looking around suspiciously. The driver really should not have been doing this. He was only supposed to be test driving this motor car for his employer, the Daimler factory in the city. But to make a few extra marks, Joseph Tito, the future dictator of Yugoslavia, moonlighted every now and then as an unlicensed cab driver. Tito pulled away from the curb and slipped into the heavy traffic. In a few minutes, he passed the Schoenbrunn Palace. Damned Austrian aristocrats, he mumbled to himself. They live in luxury, while so many in the city struggle to get by. Inside the vast 1400-room palace, Emperor Franz Joseph sat in his library. The room was indeed, as Tito had complained, luxurious. The ceilings were painted with gold leaf, the walls hung with priceless works of art, the marble floor covered with rich oriental carpets. The 83-year-old emperor sat behind his desk, frowning. In front of him stood the seventh member of that day's cast, his reluctant heir, the 49-year-old Archduke Franz Ferdinand. The Archduke had earned the emperor's everlasting opprobrium by marrying a woman beneath his rank. The Habsburgs were very strict about whom they were allowed to marry. Only members of one of the few other Catholic royal families of Europe. Of course, this meant that over the course of centuries, inbreeding had become a major problem for the Habsburgs. Many of them were physically or mentally disabled by the genetic problems that tend to occur within a small gene pool. Franz Ferdinand had dared to break the rules by marrying a mere countess rather than a princess. This, in the view of the old emperor, was a matter of great personal shame and a stain on the royal bloodline of the Habsburg family that he led. One contemporary described Emperor Franz Joseph in less than glowing terms. A wall of prejudice severs the emperor from all independent thinking. A ring of courtiers, military men and medical personnel surrounds him. The modern world barely reaches the ear of our emperor as distant rumbling. He is kept from any real participation in this life. He no longer understands the times, and the times pass by regardless. Reactionary to the core and willfully ignorant of the modern world, Franz Joseph existed in a time capsule of medieval rituals and stuffy formalities. The emperor refused even to ride in a motor car or use an elevator. All that Franz Joseph really cared about was the petty snobbishness of courtly life. Even though he had an empire to run, he would spend hours poring over every detail of some ceremony at the palace, from seating arrangements at a banquet to the order of precedence at some procession. 
and Franz Ferdinand, the man who would take over the empire and head the ancient house of Habsburg, had besmirched this courtly life that the emperor held so dear. Franz Joseph would never forgive his nephew for marrying beneath the Habsburg family, and their relationship, which had been cool to begin with, was, by 1913, stone cold. Archduke Franz Ferdinand smarted at the disdain with which his uncle and the snobbish Viennese court treated him. Still, he was loyal to the emperor, and he felt it was his duty to come to the palace that day to offer his sincere advice. Franz Ferdinand beseeched the emperor to dismiss the most senior member of the Austro-Hungarian army, General Konrad von Hotzendorf. Hotzendorf, the archduke was certain, was a threat to the peace of all Europe and the survival of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. A gung-ho warmonger, Hotzendorf was spoiling for a fight with Serbia. And that could spell ruin, sparking a wider war that Austria was, quite simply, unprepared to fight. Franz Ferdinand was no fan of the Serbs himself, and he knew that the Serbs wanted to incorporate territories such as Bosnia that were part of the Austro-Hungarian Empire that he would inherit. Unlike his out-of-touch uncle, Franz Ferdinand was just wise enough to realise that their empire was too weak to survive a major war, and the Habsburgs were too anachronistic to survive the revolutions that were sure to follow. The military ambitions of General Hotzendorf were a mortal threat to them all, the Archduke said. But the old emperor would have none of it. The matter was closed. Franz Ferdinand and his wife Sophie were unpopular figures in Vienna. The couple hated social occasions and public appearances. Many saw Franz Ferdinand's public reticence as a sign of aloofness and disinterest in the official role that had befallen him. Even as a young man, he had seemed shy, a flaw in the eyes of Viennese society which valued public spectacle above all else. And as a middle-aged man, this shyness increasingly looked like curmudgeonly disdain. Their natural shyness aside, Franz Ferdinand and Sophie tried to abstain from the whirl of the Viennese social scene because strict royal protocol constantly humiliated them. Sophie, as a person of lower rank than her husband, was forbidden from being seen alongside him in public. Also, in his political views, Franz Ferdinand was out of step with the profoundly reactionary Viennese imperial court. The Archduke was by no means on the progressive end of the political spectrum, but unlike his uncle the Emperor, he was familiar enough with the modern world to know its dangers. He favoured political reforms of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. The Habsburgs ruled over an area that covered all or parts of modern-day Austria, the Czech Republic, Slovakia, Poland, 
Romania, Hungary, Serbia, Bosnia, Croatia, Slovenia, and Northern Italy. It was an empire of many nationalities, ethnicities, languages, and religious beliefs. It was an empire barely held together by the feudalistic threads of centuries of Habsburg scheming. It was an empire that, in the 20th century, looked utterly out of step. Franz Ferdinand hoped that when he came to the throne, he could establish a more democratic, federal-style empire. However, anything that smacked of progress or change was anathema to the ultra-conservative government of Franz Joseph. Franz Ferdinand was also suspicious of the militaristic ambitions of the German Empire of Kaiser Wilhelm. Though Austria-Hungary, Germany, and also Italy were in a military and diplomatic alliance, Franz Ferdinand feared that the Kaiser's ambitions could drag the whole of Europe into a terrible war. Franz Ferdinand and Wilhelm were personally quite friendly, in large part due to the fact that the Kaiser was one of the few people who was willing to set aside protocol and embrace Sophie as an equal. That must have been a refreshing change from the attitude of the Viennese court, which treated her with utter disdain. Both men were also ardent hunters, and they seemed to genuinely enjoy each other's company when they met for shooting parties. But this did not blind the Archduke to the knowledge that the Kaiser was a very dangerous man, whose military zeal threatened to bring ruin upon all of Europe. For Kaiser Wilhelm's dreams of glory to succeed, he needed to ensure that the German alliance with the Austro-Hungarian Empire was strong. The clouds of war hung over Europe in 1913. While the Kaiser strutted and flexed his muscles to the north, tensions ran especially high in the Balkan region of southern Europe. Austria and the Russian Empire were struggling for influence in the region. Emperor Franz Joseph ruled over the northern Balkan lands of Bosnia, Croatia and Slovenia. The Tsar of Russia backed the kingdoms of Serbia and Montenegro. Meanwhile, the Ottoman Empire was struggling to maintain its last grip on the Balkan Peninsula to the south. This balancing act between the major powers could not last for long. As the famous former Chancellor of Germany, Otto von Bismarck, had once put it, sooner or later, Europe would be plunged into war by some damn foolish thing in the Balkans. A particular flashpoint was the Austrian province of Bosnia and Herzegovina. The territory was made up of about 50% Serbs, many of whom wished to be part of a greater Serbia. The other half of the province's population was made up of Catholic Croats and Muslim Bosnians. The Habsburg regime feared the growing Serbian nationalism on the southern border of their empire. Many Serbs wanted not only Bosnia, but also the Austro-Hungarian provinces of present-day Slovenia and Croatia incorporated within a united Slavic kingdom. If the Serbian nationalist movement was successful in the Balkans, then 
the Habsburgs correctly reasoned, other nationalist movements would soon spread across their polyglot empire. Additionally, the authorities in Vienna knew that because Serbia was a Russian ally, any advance that Serbia made was also an advance of Russian interests in the Balkans. To make matters more fraught, the Italian, German, and British empires all had stakes in the Balkans too. For example, Germany wanted its Austrian ally to have a strong southern flank. The British did not want Russia to have access to the Mediterranean via Serbia. And Italy coveted the western coast of the Balkans in order to turn the Adriatic into an Italian-controlled sea. And then all the European powers wanted to carve up what remained of the crumbling Ottoman Empire, which was clinging on to its last Balkan possessions by its fingertips. It was all like a very complex and very high-stakes game of chess, with many strategies involved. In fact, Europe had very nearly been plunged into war in 1908. That year, the former Ottoman territory of Bosnia and Herzegovina was annexed by Austria. Bosnia had long been a protectorate of the Austrians. Their move to seize it as a formal province of their empire was viewed as a highly provocative move by the other countries in the region. The Serbs, of course, were furious. They saw Bosnia as a natural part of their kingdom. And Russia saw the move as a power grab, and therefore as a threat. Meanwhile, in Germany, the Kaiser was angry that his Habsburg allies had brought Europe to the brink of war at a time not of Berlin's choosing. The 1908 crisis had been averted, but the tensions continued to mount. By the time Archduke Franz Ferdinand made his official visit to Bosnia in 1914, the province was at a political boiling point. Serb nationalists saw the presence of the heir to the Habsburg throne in Sarajevo as both a provocation and as an opportunity. The Black Hand was an ultra-nationalist terror group that was backed, not so secretly, by the highest levels of the Serbian government. Even the Orthodox Church gave it support. The group was armed and trained by the Serbian army, which viewed the Black Hand as a paramilitary organisation it could use to launch covert attacks on Austrian targets. Black Hand members were sworn to fight the Habsburg Empire, to the death if necessary. Their cadres trained for assassinations using small arms and bombs. The visit of Franz Ferdinand, the biggest target short of the emperor himself, was the perfect opportunity for them to put their skills to the test. There were people in Austria itching for a war against their Serbian foes. The Serbs were a menace, or so the nobility and military brass thought. The Serbs were upstarts whose very existence as an independent nation was a threat. A war against Serbia would send a powerful message to all their enemies, both within and without their empire, that Habsburg rule was not to be challenged. 
The leading warhawk was Konrad von Hotzendorf, chief of the general staff, the man that Franz Ferdinand wanted to have fired. It hadn't always been like that though. At first, Franz Ferdinand had supported von Hotzendorf, seeing the general as a man who could modernise the ill-equipped and outdated Austro-Hungarian army. But once it became clear that von Hotzendorf wanted to launch a so-called preventative war against Serbia, Franz Ferdinand started to turn against him. Not that Franz Ferdinand was some kind of pacifist, not at all, but he was aware of the fragility of his empire and the risk that war in the Balkans could quickly turn into a Europe-wide conflagration from which the entire social order might not survive. War nearly broke out in early 1914 when von Hotzendorf persuaded the Emperor to move a large portion of the army to the border with Russia. Franz Ferdinand wrote to one of his military aides, Please, constrain Conrad for me. He should stop all this agitating for war. Of course, it would be splendid and is very tempting to throw these Serbians and Montenegrins into the frying pan, but what use are such cheap laurels to us if we then face such an escalation through general complications in Europe that we would find ourselves having to fight on two or three fronts, something we could not manage. As we can see from these words, Franz Ferdinand was in no way averse to waging war against another, smaller, weaker country. However, he was just savvy enough to realise that the Empire could not survive a large-scale war. And of course, he turned out to be correct. For within four years of his death and the ensuing war that he had feared, the Austro-Hungarian Empire had crumbled and the ancient Habsburg family had fallen from power. It seemed that any spark could ignite the powder keg in the Balkans. Only a pretext was needed for war. And the murder of Franz Ferdinand would provide the perfect excuse for the Austrian High Command to initiate a conflict that everyone knew they had already planned. In June 1914, Franz Ferdinand and his wife Sophie visited the Bosnian capital of Sarajevo. The Archduke had been instructed by Emperor Franz Joseph to attend army manoeuvres in the province. While there, Franz Ferdinand was also to attend various ceremonial functions in the capital, such as public appearances, shaking hands, kissing babies, all the usual stuff that royals do. Such public appearances were hugely risky in a frontier province like Bosnia, simmering with ethno-nationalist tensions. The authorities in Vienna knew that Sarajevo was a hotbed of Serb activism, including extremists like the Black Hand with terroristic intentions. Sarajevo in 1914 was under what looked like military rule, Austrian troops patrolled the streets and the Austrian governor had banned numerous societies, closed down Serbian newspapers and suspended the provincial parliament. Arbitrary arrests were commonplace. 
The governor himself almost never appeared on the streets of Sarajevo for fear of assassination. The date of Franz Ferdinand's visit to Sarajevo was significant. June 28th is the feast day of St Vitus, a patron saint of Serbia and the most important national holiday for the Serbian people. The visit of the Archduke to Sarajevo could not have been arranged on a less auspicious or more provocative day. When Franz Joseph had visited Sarajevo back in 1910, the city was put on lockdown, with thousands of troopers, police and secret agents thronging the streets to provide a ring of steel around the Emperor. Yet, for Franz Ferdinand's visit in 1914, when tensions were even higher, the security measures put in place were strangely wanting. Instead, the Archduke's visit was arranged as a low-key affair. Perhaps this was to avoid antagonising the rest of the population. But this low-key approach meant that relatively few measures were taken to ensure the safety of the heir to the throne. Despite the large military presence in the province, no soldiers were sent into the city. Instead, the safety of Franz Ferdinand was entrusted to a few dozen local police officers, in addition to the Archduke's small secret service detail. One official in Vienna complained that the Archduke's security had been left in God's hands. Well, God was not smiling on Franz Ferdinand and Sophie that day in June 1914. In the spring of that fateful year, a group gathered at a coffee shop in Belgrade. The three conspirators, Gavrilo Princip, Trifko Grabes, and Nadelko Kabrinovich, were all firmly convinced that their country could only liberate itself from imperialist domination if young men, like themselves, took violent action to get rid of their oppressors. The Black Hand took the three young men from Belgrade to a quiet border crossing into Bosnia. From there, they used false papers to travel by railway to the outskirts of Sarajevo, where sympathetic Serbian farmers gave them shelter and the opportunity to train for their mission. Venturing into Sarajevo, the three conspirators then met up with two other Black Hand members in the city, Mohamed Mehmet Basic and Danilo Ilic. Ilic had also recruited two high school students to help with the plot. As all these young people gathered in Sarajevo, back in Belgrade, a secret meeting of the leadership of the Black Hand convened. There was growing unease among them about the plot to assassinate Franz Ferdinand. Many senior members of the movement considered the plot to be too risky. Austria could use the assassination as an excuse to launch an attack on Serbia, igniting a war that the Serbs would probably lose. Others at the secret meeting supported the plot. It was too good an opportunity to pass up the chance to decapitate the hated Habsburg oppressors. The argument between the two sides raged for hours until those who wanted to call off the assassination won out. 
the leadership passed a resolution to abandon the plot. An urgent message was immediately sent to Sarajevo. But what happened to that message? A courier for the Black Hand did meet with Ilich in Sarajevo on June 18th. But was the message to cancel the assassination actually passed on? Those within the Black Hand who wished the plot to go ahead, did they make sure that the message given to Ilich was changed from abort to go ahead? Or was the message accurately conveyed to Ilich, but the group of fervent young nationalists in Sarajevo decided to ignore the order and go ahead with their mission, preferring to fulfil the plan to which they had wholeheartedly committed? We just do not know. One way or another, the plot to kill Franz Ferdinand went ahead. Archduke Franz Ferdinand and his wife Sophie were staying at a beautiful spa hotel outside Sarajevo. Kabrinovich had been selected to case the joint. However, he didn't do a very good job. Not long after the royal couple arrived, Kabrinovich was chased away from the hotel by a police officer who saw him suspiciously lurking around the grounds. The next day, the day before the planned attack, Kabrinovich met with his fellow conspirators in a bar. They drank heavily, no doubt trying to calm their nerves. Kabrinovich was talking loudly, telling other people in the bar that something big was about to happen. Whether or not anyone in the bar that night took the drunken talk of Kabrinovich seriously, by the afternoon of the following day, all of Sarajevo and the whole world would understand the terrible impact that these young men would have on the course of history. Franz Ferdinand and Sophie awoke on the last day of their visit to Bosnia to a glorious morning. Birds sang in the immaculately maintained grounds of the hotel as the sun rose above the wooded mountains that surrounded the city. The couple had attended a lavish gala dinner the night before, hosted by the governor of the province. The royal visit had gone off without a hitch. Many local people had actually expressed warm feelings towards the Archduke and his wife, and Apart from Kabrinovich sneaking around the hotel, there had been no signs of security threats that had so worried Franz Ferdinand and his staff. Still, they would be glad to leave the province and return to the relative safety of Vienna. There wasn't that much left for them to do in Sarajevo before they boarded their train in the afternoon. They were to travel in a motorcade to the city hall and then travel by car again to a luncheon at the governor's mansion. Despite his misgivings, all in all, the visit had been rather successful, the Archduke thought. The streets of Sarajevo were bedecked with Austrian flags and colourful bunting, and a military band played to greet their Archduke. All the city's top officials, including the governor and the mayor, were with the royal couple as they set off into the city. Franz Ferdinand and Sophie rode in an open-top motor car, with little Habsburg flags mounted on the hood. The Archduke was in full ceremonial get-up, the uniform of an Austrian cavalry general, with gold epaulets, 
and a helmet sprouting peacock feathers. Modest crowds lined the motorcade route, some waving flags, others just gawping at the strange spectacle. A few local police stood around, but everything seemed to be peaceful and actually quite festive. A series of loud shots rang out across the city, the cannons of the old Turkish fortress firing a 24-gun salute. Further down the motorcade route, the conspirators stood among the crowd. They'd met earlier that morning, probably hung over from the night before, to distribute their weapons and go over their plans one last time. Resolved, they spread out. The two local high school students were positioned furthest along the parade route. Gavrilo Princip and Trifko Grabes stood nearer the start of the route. Ilich was moving along the street trying to find a clear line of sight. Mehmed Basic and Kabrinovic were located nearest the start of the route. They would see the Royal Motorcade first, and theirs would be the first opportunity to strike. Mehmed Basic froze. He would later claim that a police officer was looking at him, but Kabrinovich did not hesitate. When the Archduke's car passed by, he took a bomb from inside his jacket, struck the detonator against a lamppost, and threw it at the convenient target of Franz Ferdinand's flamboyant headdress. The chauffeur spotted the attack and accelerated rapidly, so that instead of landing on the royal couple, the bomb bounced off the back of the car and exploded on the road. Twenty spectators were injured, but nobody in the Archduke's party was seriously wounded. Kabrinovich jumped over a barrier down to a shallow stream that ran along the side of the street, shouting, I'm a Serbian hero! A crowd chased him. When they caught up with Kabrinovich, the young would-be assassin was beaten and then dragged away by the police. Kabrinovich took a small vial of cyanide from his pocket and drank, but the poison, for whatever reason, did not work and he was taken into custody. The car carrying Franz Ferdinand and Sophie sped on towards the city hall. The other conspirators along the parade route did not, it seems, have the opportunity to launch another attempt on the Archduke's life. Then a very strange, indeed a seemingly inexplicable sequence of events unfolded. At the city hall, Franz Ferdinand attempted to carry on as if nothing had happened. He gave a formal speech to the mayor and other dignitaries and then attended a reception. Franz Ferdinand's aide-de-camp spoke to the governor. What security measures could be put in place to protect the Archduke as he was driven back out through the streets of the city? Do you think that Sarajevo is full of assassins? The governor indignantly replied. The aide-de-camp requested that soldiers from the garrison should be brought into the city to line the streets to protect the royal car. The governor dismissed the idea. It would be improper to have soldiers in the streets during a royal visit, because the soldiers would not be in full-dress uniform, as was protocol. Was this a kind of insanely dogmatic adherence to official protocol from the local governor? Perhaps the Austrians were sticklers for decorum. 
But this technicality over military uniforms seems totally incongruous with the scale of the threat that the Archduke clearly faced. It must have been clear to everyone, including the governor, that the would-be assassin that they'd captured might not have been working alone. The exasperated aide-de-camp then demanded that police clear the streets so the Archduke's car could pass through unassaulted. The governor rejected even this elementary safety measure. So, Franz Ferdinand and Sophie would have to drive back along the same route, unguarded by any additional security, through a crowd that in all probability so far as any rational person would assume, would contain co-conspirators of the man who had just thrown a bomb. Franz Ferdinand and his wife climbed back into the open-top motor car. Maybe we'll get more bombs today, the Archduke said. The car sped off down the street, with a guard standing on the running board at the Archduke's side to provide a modicum of additional safety. Princip was still standing on the sidewalk of the parade route, without a clue what was going on. Would Franz Ferdinand come back this way? Would soldiers or police clear the streets? If Kabrinovich made a confession to the police, he might be arrested at any moment. To Princip's astonishment, the royal motorcade made its way down the street towards him. The Archduke's peacock plumed hat advertising his royal presence to the world. Princip pulled out his revolver. His hand was steady. He fired several times. The assassin hit his mark. Franz Ferdinand was struck through the throat. The car sped on, now diverted to the governor's house. Franz Ferdinand was semi-conscious and bleeding badly. When they reached the residence, the archduke's limp body was carried inside. An army surgeon who happened to be present made an assessment. There was nothing to be done. The bullet had severed an artery. Franz Ferdinand bled out and died within minutes of arriving. Sophie had also been hit. She died almost instantly. With their deaths, three young children were left as orphans. News of the assassination reached Emperor Franz Joseph. By telegram. Faced with the murder of his nephew, the old ruler sighed with relief. He still resented that Franz Ferdinand had married the mere Countess Sophie. A higher power has restored the old order that I, unfortunately, was unable to uphold, the old ruler told an aide. The emperor's daughter, later recalled how her father showed no grief, but rather excitement that the assassination had taken place. For me, the emperor is reputed to have said, it is one great worry less. The mood was much the same across Austrian high society. The archduke had been an unpopular figure. He had a cold, brusque demeanour in public and he shied away from the all-important Viennese social scene, which the public had viewed as a sign of his haughtiness. So when he died, one commentator in Vienna responded to the news with the words, The ogre is dead! 
Across Europe, few people shed a tear. The German Kaiser sent a heartfelt message to the children of Franz Ferdinand and Sophie, but Wilhelm might in private have let out a sigh of relief. The death of Franz Ferdinand made war in the Balkans more likely, a war that the Kaiser was planning for, a war that Germany hoped to profit from. In Serbia, the assassination was greeted with barely concealed glee. In Belgrade's newspapers, the assassins were hailed as national heroes. However, others in Serbia were aware of the risks that their country now faced. They knew that the Austro-Hungarian Empire was likely to seek vengeance, and that the death of Franz Ferdinand might be used as a pretext to wage war. In fact, some were already suggesting that the Austrian authorities had arranged for the heir to the throne to be assassinated. What of the assassins? Mehmed Basic, who had frozen when given the opportunity to carry out his crime, managed to escape Sarajevo and make it to the tiny neighbouring kingdom of Montenegro, a close ally of Russia and Serbia. The Montenegrins refused to extradite him to Austria. Princip, the assassin, and Kabrinovic, who unsuccessfully threw the bomb, were captured by the police and interrogated by a local judge. The two men freely admitted their responsibility, but refused to name names. Nonetheless, police soon rounded up the other conspirators. Ilich was sentenced to death. All the others were under 20 years of age, and therefore too young to be executed under local law. Instead, they were all sentenced to lengthy prison terms. The Austrian authorities quickly blamed the Serbian government for the crime. General von Hotzendorf pounced on the assassination to push forward plans for war against Serbia. On July 25th, Franz Joseph signed the order to mobilise his army. Russia mobilised its forces in response. Within ten days, the continent of Europe descended into the nightmare of the First World War. What would have happened if Archduke Franz Ferdinand had never gone to Sarajevo that notorious day in the summer of 1914? Or what if the governor of Bosnia had ordered troops to clear the streets of the city? Or if Princip's hand had not been so steady and his bullets had missed the royal couple? Would the First World War have ever happened? Given that Europe, and the Balkan region in particular, was a tinderbox of ethnic, national and geostrategic tensions, I think it's fair to say that, sooner or later, something would have sparked a major war. And because of the system of alliances that existed between the great European empires, any major conflict would have inevitably spread across the continent. When faced with a crime, especially a crime of such world historic proportions, it's always worth asking the question, who benefits? General von Hotzendorf had for years been agitating for war. Franz Ferdinand stood in the way of that plan, and to make matters worse, 
he had beseeched the emperor to dismiss the general. Almost before the bodies of Franz Ferdinand and Sophie were cold, von Hotzendorf was making moves to launch the war, and the emperor, according to his own daughter, was seemingly glad to hear of the murder of his nephew and heir. If the Austrian authorities did not actively plot Franz Ferdinand's death, it was, at the very least, extreme negligence. Virtually nothing was done to protect the life of Franz Ferdinand. Short of putting a target on his back, the Austrian authorities could hardly have done more to invite an assassination. Of all those involved in the assassination of Franz Ferdinand and his wife Sophie, it was Nigelko Kabrinovich who expressed remorse for the crime. From prison, Kabrinovich wrote a letter to the three orphaned children of the royal couple, in which he expressed his regret. Two of the children received this letter with extraordinary grace, writing back that they forgave him for his involvement in killing their parents, and that his conscience should be at rest. Kabrinovich and Princip died in prison during the First World War, both men succumbing to tuberculosis. Thanks for listening to this episode of Assassinations Podcast. If you enjoyed it, please head over to iTunes to leave us a review. As a new podcast, reviews are very important as they help other listeners find us. If you'd like to know more about the assassination of Franz Ferdinand, you can visit assassinationspodcast.com where you'll find supplemental information and photos of the people mentioned in today's episode. I also welcome listener feedback. Do you have a question or comment about today's episode? A suggestion for an assassination you'd like to see featured on a future show? Please reach out via the website or Twitter and let me know. Thanks to those who have reached out after our Rasputin episode. It was really incredible to hear from you. And kind of cool to know that our little podcast isn't just echoing out there around the internet. If you'd like to support the podcast, I have a Patreon page that you'll find linked on the podcast website. For as little as a dollar a month, you can support the show and gain access to exclusive content and perks. Our podcast theme music was created by the fabulously talented Graham Ronald. Thanks to Lindsay Morse for editing and designing the sound for this episode. Research and writing was done by me, Neil Cooper. Thanks again for listening, and I hope you'll join me next time when I explore the assassination of Leon Trotsky. We've met him in both of our previous episodes, and next time we'll focus on the international plot to hunt down and kill the man who was most associated with revolutionary turmoil in the early 20th century.